we are in a series called God Forever. And in this series, uh, as we're moving into election, it's election week uh, this week, we're heading right into it. And as we're dealing with all the change that's going on in our world right now, uh, we wanna focus in on what is unchanging, what stays the same forever, and that is God. God is unchanging. And we're looking at the attributes and characteristics of God that's unchanging. And so just to get our eyes focused on that for a bit, that's kind of what our hope is in this series. Um, this past week, in our bread reading, I came across this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. If you read this this last week, it, starts, it goes like this. Uh, you then, my son, speaking of Timothy, Paul's writing this to Timothy. You then, my son, he says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in grace grace. And when I wrote in my Bible on the very top, I have a note that I wrote in pencil and I wrote to myself years ago and I put in parentheses and I wrote this. I said, find out what this means. Be strong in the grace of God. And I wrote, find out what this means. As I've been meditating on this phrase, as I've tried to find out what it means to be strong in the grace of Christ, I'd like to share that with you today. I want to teach that this morning, what I found and what it means to be strong in the grace of God. So uh, for that, turn to Titus chapter three, uh, verse three, I'll pray and then we'll get to this text in a second. Um, so would you pray with me this morning? God, as we, um, as we approach this text uh, and we approach you, God, who is full of grace and truth, we pray, Lord, that you would teach us that we would hang on and cling to the grace of God, that we would hang on to it, and it would be our, our sustenance, it would be our, our nourishment, it would be what keeps us um, going and alive during this time. Lord, I, 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 just, I wanna pray for uh, our church in this coming week as we face uh, just more and more uh, division in our nation and more and more, I can't even imagine what's gonna be happening this next week, but I just pray your grace over uh, our church, that we would be a salt and light um, in this world and in this city. And I pray that um, we'd be infused with your grace and be ambassadors of your peace and ambassadors of your grace, that we embody your grace uh, to the world. And, um, and we, just, we just sit under your teach these teachings now, this, this scriptures now, and would you form us and conform us uh, to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, I've noticed... Uh, more and more in our cultural rhetoric that there are words and phrases that, that we use a lot to try and lift us up so that we can feel good about ourselves and to do good in the world. And there are words I hear in workout classes um, and in movies and social media posts and there are words that are becoming more and more common in the church. And there are words and phrases that tell you that you are enough or you are worthy or you are strong, or you are beautiful. And here's the thing, not that these words aren't true in some sense, because they are, but oftentimes these words are like candy. They taste really good as we, uh, as we take these words in, um, but as we start to digest these words, they don't have the nutrients or the substance to satisfy the deep hunger of our human souls. They never really stick to our ribs and give us the nourishment we deeply crave. 
See, they have the appearance of encouragement and do some surface work in elevating the spirit, but in the end, we are left with the same old self, the same old us, with our same old feelings. Now, the good news that I have for you this morning is that this is not the language that God uses. Now, why is that good news? You're like, wait, that doesn't sound like good news. Why why is that good news? It's good news because God tells you the truth. God tells you the truth about yourself. God doesn't show up in Christ and begin preaching by saying, you're enough, you're worthy, you got this, you're amazing. He does not do that. Jesus, who shows us what God is like, tells you and I the truth. Now, what's the truth? Well, the truth is laced in Jesus' opening words as he began his public ministry. He began his public ministry in Mark chapter one by using the word repent. That word means to turn around. That word means to change the way that you're thinking. That word means to feel a sense of remorse for your sin and turn to God. Which should clue us, this word that Jesus uses at the very beginning of his ministry, should clue us in to something about us. Something like maybe the way that we're living our life is not that amazing. Or maybe the decisions we're making are not that strong, nor do they make us strong. But Jesus goes on to say, repent and believe the good news. And the good news is that you don't have to be enough. You don't have to be worthy. You don't have to have this. You don't, you don't, have, to have, you don't have to have this. You don't have to, to, you don't have to be amazing. You don't have to be amazing. And the reason why that's good news is that we need more than the effervescence of flattery and motivation to pull us into our true selves and into the divine nature. We need way more than like, you're going to do it. You're enough. You're worthy. You're amazing. That doesn't pull us into our true selves and into the divine nature. What we need, we need what God says and we need who God is. Because what God says is the truth and who God is, well, that is the only way we can be pulled from the mire of our false selves and be brought into a rebirth and a renewal that all the flattery and all the social media posts can never achieve. And it's found in our text this morning. Let's read this together. Titus chapter three, it starts in verse three. At one time, Paul writes to to, to Titus, at one time, and I would posit, Maybe the time is right now. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now I wanna stop there for a second before we keep reading in this text. Not until we face the truth of these sentences head on, does the beauty of what comes next break in and truly refresh us, truly encourage us, lift us up and send us into life abundantly. And it goes on and it says this, not until we understand the first part do we get the second part, but, now you don't understand that word but unless you've truly understood the depth of our need for God's grace, but the grace of God breaks in anyway. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, 
we might become heirs having hope of eternal life. This is God's word. Say thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God because of his kindness that he has shown to us when we were not enough and when we were not worthy, God's love for us appeared in Jesus and Jesus saved us, not because we were awesome, not because we were all bosses, not because we were all strong, because of his great mercy. And this is what makes grace so amazing. It's his mercy and his grace that saved us. And Paul exhorts young Timothy, be strong in this grace. Be strong in the grace that comes from Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, how do we grow strong in God's grace? How do we, since God's grace is there, how do we grow strong in it? Now, the first thing we need, I think, is an honest assessment. Before we can grow, grow strong in any part of our lives, before there's growth in any parts of our life, it starts with being honest with where we're at currently. If you're trying to get out of debt, you better give all your financial records to and all, to all of all of your accounts and all your credit cards to your financial planner. You, should, you need to bring it all out. You have to let them know where you're at and what you make so they can put together a plan on strengthening your finances. You have to bring them into everything. You have to be honest with where you're at. That's the only way you're gonna get to where you need to go. If you're trying to work on a, on a marriage that feels like it's failing with a counselor or a therapist, you have to be honest with yourself and with your spouse on what's not working and face up to the fact that things are broken. If you wanna get out of debt or fix a broken marriage, if you end up in these meetings and you act like everything is fine, you're not going to get anywhere. I know because I've done both of these things wrong. So how do you grow strong in the grace of God? First, you have to be honest about your human condition. You have to be honest with where you're at. It's okay that you're not okay. It's okay to let your guard down and say that you can't really hold it all together that much longer. It's okay to confess that you're on the brink of giving up. See, that's the first part of this text. And this is exactly what this, this text is trying to get to at the first part of Titus 3. is all about the human condition. It's filled with the human condition. Look at verse 3 in Titus 3. It's filled with Foolish mistakes. I don't know if that's anyone in here. If you've made foolish mistakes, if you've been disobedient, it's filled with deceived by your own passions and pleasures where you think something is good for you, but actually it's your pleasures and your passion for these pleasures that's deceived you. The desire sometimes to do evil, envy, being hated by others and as a result, hating in return. This is all what Titus 3 is talking about. And I think it sums this up pretty well. Now, you may be thinking right now, okay, here's the preacher again going off about how bad we are. And this is the problem you might be saying with Christianity. They just love to beat people up in Christianity. Pastors and priests love to beat people up with how they fall short. Now, I think it's really good here, and I know you may be thinking that, I understand that. I think it's good to point out that the Bible does not deny the value of creation or of humanity created in God's image. The scriptures actually start like this. The world is good, nature is good, humanity is good, life is good, food is good, nudity is good, vegetarianism is good, and so on. Just read Genesis chapter one and two. 
So Paul here is not saying that all human beings are worthless, and he's not saying that all human beings are as bad as they can be. 2020 is proving that there, is a, there are deeper levels to human stupidity and depravity, right? We all know that. What Paul is saying is something is horribly wrong with humanity and we all know it. We all feel it, we all live in it. And this isn't just a Christian ethics thing. Think of it this way. If you took and compiled all the behaviors that world religions ask and demand and urge upon humanity, take all the world religions, there, there is basically universal agreement between all world religions. We're not supposed to lie, we're not supposed to murder or rob or be unjust. We are to live by the golden rule. We're to be generous with our possessions. We're to show mercy. Like pretty much all world religions agree with these things. Actually, this is exactly what C.S. Lewis did at the end of his book, The Abolition of Man. He compiles a series of sayings from all the different world religions. And when they ask, what they ask and they urge on humanity and what they want us to do. And he did this to show that when it comes to, the, to behaviors, there's total agreement on the way that humans are supposed to live. Now, everyone understands that we should live justly and generously and not murder or lie. There is universal consensus. Even in the religions, there's universal consensus. Everyone knows that we should live this way. And yet... We can all pretty much agree that the main reason for all the misery in the world and all the problems in society is because people don't live this way. Now, if everyone agrees that we should be doing this, and if everyone agrees that the problems in our city and our world are the results of not living this way, what the heck is wrong with us? What is it about the human heart that we can know exactly what to do and the consequences of not doing it, but do it anyway. No matter who's president, no matter if it's a liberal government or a conservative government that has the power, no matter what trend is blowing through our nation or neighborhood, no matter what church we go to, no matter the philosophy we hold to or how educated we are or what technology is available to us at the time, we all do what's wrong anyway. And I'm not talking about breaking, just breaking the Ten Commandments. We disobey our own conscience. Whatever law that you decided to live by, everyone has fallen short of even their own standard. No matter your moral or ethical code, if somewhere along the road you decided to live by the law of Moses or the teachings of Jesus or the way of San Francisco, you have betrayed your own conscience. The convictions, even if you follow like the convictions of our own society, I guarantee you you're recycling wrong. I guarantee there's something wrong with the way you're living in the San Francisco's values. Or these could be your COVID resolutions, your sexual boundaries, your work-life boundaries, whatever it is, you have not succeeded in observing your own standards. And the point is, we don't even have to stand God-condemned, we stand self-condemned. If we stood before God and he just judged us by our own standards, not his standards, we would all stand self-condemned. And this is the point of verse three. It demands that we take an honest assessment of where we are at. See, the problem is that all of us, a lot of us, maybe not all of us, a lot of us are like King David right now. 
This is what's going on. This is all the rhetoric in our world. We're all like King David. Remember the story of his sin with Bathsheba? He has uh, King David at this time of his life. He has a harem of women as a king. But he sees Bathsheba from the roof of his palace and he sends for her. He sleeps with her. He gets her pregnant. He calls her husband Uriah after he finds out that she's pregnant. And he calls him from the battlefield and he tries to get Uriah to sleep with his wife so it doesn't look like David got her pregnant, but it looks like Uriah, her husband, got her pregnant and he would be completely in the clear. But he doesn't. Uriah doesn't comply. He doesn't sleep with his wife. So David has him killed. So David, still unrepentant, still does not go to God confessing his sin, God sends a prophet named Nathan to David. And the prophet Nathan comes to David and he tells David a story. He goes, David, I want to tell you a story. And he starts to appeal to his shepherding sensibility. So David used to be a shepherd. As a young boy, he was a shepherd out with sheep. And he says, David, I have a story to tell you. Actually, it's not a story. It actually happened. There was a, there was a man who had tons of sheep. He was a very, very wealthy man. He has sheep of all ages and all sizes and all colors. And then he, this guy has a neighbor. And the neighbor only had one sheep. Actually, it wasn't even a sheep. It was a ewe lamb. It was a baby little, little lamb. And he and his family loved this little lamb. And this lamb ate with them. And this lamb slept with them. And it was like a part of their family. And then one day, the rich man had a bunch of guests over. And traditionally for guests, you would slaughter a lamb and serve it to them as food. But this man didn't serve one of his own lambs. He jumped the fence, stole the neighbor's only little baby ewe lamb, killed that and served it to his guests. At this point in the story, David starts to freak out. He literally starts flipping out. He says, he says, stop. Who is this man? He has to die and then he has to pay back four times what he did. And of course, you know the story, David sa Nathan says to David, that man is you. You are that man. You are the man who has a harem of wives and you've taken Uriah's only wife and then you had him killed. You are that man. And the point is this. Our sin looks a lot worse on other people than it does on ourselves. When David looked at himself, he didn't see the disgust. When David looked at his own situation, he had a way of justifying what he did. What well, he was lonely. He was this. He was that. She was pretty. Uh, this was my only plan. I have, to, I have to do this for the kingdom. He has his own way of justifying it. But when Nathan framed it as someone else's sin, he said, that's disgusting. See, this is what's going on in our world right now. A lot of us are like David right now. We are, we are in sin in our own ways, but our sin, we justify it. We self-justify, oh no, it's because I'm, I'm lonely. Oh, it's no, because of COVID. Oh no, it's because I, I, you know, I'm, I, kinda, I need to release by shopping or whatever. Whatever it is, we're just, and then we see it on someone else. We see it on a different political party. We see it on someone else that's on a different side of the race argument or whatever, and we hate it. We're like, that's disgusting. That person's such a, I can't believe the disgust in that person. And we see that. What we need is an honest assessment of our own sin and our, of our own need for grace. We need these Nathan moments for someone to come to us and say, you are that person. You are just like that person. You are just like the people that you say you hate. You, you are guilty of the same sin. See, the beginning of growing strong in God's grace is to realize our need for God's grace. But that's not all. Lastly, how do you go, grow strong in the grace of God? 
you need to grasp the sufficiency of God's grace. There's a story about a conference that took place on, on comparative religions in Britain. Experts from around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. Was it the incarnation? Was that unique? That's what made Christianity unique, the incarnation, uh, God becoming a human. And then they argued, well, other religions had different versions of God appearing in human form. Okay, maybe not that then. What about the resurrection? That Jesus died and then he rose from the dead. Well, they said, well, again, other religions had accounts of return from the death, from death. As the story goes, the debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. And as legend has it, he says, what's all the commotion about? What are you guys arguing about? What's going on here? And they said, we're discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. And Lewis famously responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. That's what makes Christianity so distinct. It's the grace of God. And he mic drops and he walks out of the room and they're like, ah, and then they agreed. That is actually what makes Christianity unique. It's the grace of God. God's grace is God's love coming toward us free of charge. No strings attached receiving us just as we are. We don't have to clean up ourselves. We don't have to get out of debt before we go to church. We don't have to stop using before we go. We don't have to stop whatever. It's exactly how we are. And he gives us by his grace what we don't deserve. Life in divine union with God himself. What Jesus refers to as eternal life. God's grace comes at us while we are yet sinners, while we still mess things up, while we still can't quite get our stuff together, while we still can't seem to figure God out and use that as an excuse to do all kinds of things we know this God that we're still trying to figure out does not want for our life. Even then, God's grace comes after us. I need this grace. I mean, I need this grace today. As a husband, as a parent, as a pastor, I need this grace, I'm not infallible. And God's grace doesn't run out. It doesn't run out after you've confessed your sin 700 times. You know why God's grace doesn't run out? God's grace is not something God has. Grace is something that God is. Grace is who God is. He doesn't run out of his grace because it's not something he has. He's like, oh, I just gave it all out to that other person. I'm sorry, I don't have any more. It's who he is. Grace is a part of God's infinite and eternal self. It doesn't run out, it doesn't stop, it can't be turned off. The mystical writer A.W. Tozer said that God can no more hide his grace than the sun can hide its brightness. And people may flee from the sunlight, hide in caves and dark places on the earth, but they cannot put out the sun. In the same way, you can run from God, turn to sin again and again and again, and yet God's grace remains. Paul says that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. This is scandalous. If you sin, there's more grace. What? This sounds scandalous. And God's grace isn't what we need at the beginning. It's not just what we need at the beginning. It's not like, oh, I needed God's grace when I became a Christian, and now I don't need his grace anymore. No, no. When we're coming home to God like the prodigal son, we need his grace. <clears throat> and when we've been a follower of Jesus for 35 years and think we th we're starting to figure this out finally, we still need his grace. 
God's grace is sufficient. Actually, God's grace isn't just sufficient for our sin. God's grace is sufficient for every trial and every bit of suffering that we endure in this life. God's grace turns our trials into lessons and our suffering into glory. The grace of God is undeserved. We do not and never can deserve God's grace. We're not worthy of God's grace, but he gives it to us anyway. We can't buy it, we can't pay for it, we can't be born into it. It's an insult to even try to try to buy or pay for God's grace. Imagine getting the most amazing gift from a loved one and afterward you try to pay for it. No, that's not how it works. Grace is always a gift and it's never a reward. The grace of God is unconditional. Nothing can stop it from happening. The grace of God appears and, he, and it offers us God's salvation. And it's, it's not based on anything that we've done. It's completely an unconditional love of God. The grace of God is free. God is under no obligation to give it. It's his choice to give it. And from his nature, he gives it. And the grace of God is liberating. Grace frees us from guilt and shame from the authority of sin and Satan, it frees us to be our true selves. It frees us to live into the divine nature. It frees us to enjoy and practice union with God. And the grace of God is sufficient. The grace of God is enough. It's all that we need. Philip Yancey in his wonderful book, What's So Amazing About Grace says, grace means There's nothing we can do to make God love us more. No amount of spiritual uh, calisthenics, no renunciations, no amount of knowledge gained from seminaries and divinity schools, no amount of crusading on behalf of righteous causes. And And God's grace means that there is nothing we can do to make God love us any less. No amount of racism or pride or pornography or adultery or even murder. Grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. And our only true and right response to this grace is worship and allegiance. And the way that we stay, that we stay strong or we gain strength in God's grace is that we see our need for it. We see right now our absolute need for God's grace. And we see the absolute sufficiency of his grace given to us. And we say, God, it's enough. Your grace is enough. And if I feel like I've gone to this well a million times, I get to go to it again. Your grace is sufficient. It's there and it's from your divine nature that it flows. It never runs out and never runs dry and it's always pursuing us. This is God's grace. It's his nature. It's as true as God's wrath, is as true as God's kindness, is as true as God's love. It's right here, God's grace. I'm gonna call the worship team back up and we're gonna move into a time of prayer, sitting with this and then moving into response through this, this music. So would you pray with me? Lord, thank you, God, for this grace. It draws us, um, higher into, into worship. It draws us into adoration. Um, when we think about what you've done for us, we think about this grace that never runs dry. We have actually the power 
to receive this grace and then show, even show ourselves grace. If you're gonna show us grace, we can show ourselves grace. I pray that we'd be grace-filled people, that we'd receive your grace right now and it would allow us to show ourselves grace, to show our friends and family grace, to show our enemies grace. This week, as so much potential hatred will be on every news channel, in the streets of our cities, we pray that the grace of God would flood in, and because, Christ, you've given us your grace, we would give grace in return. We would forgive offenders, we would forgive those who, who commit sin and wrongdoing, because we know the grace of God go us. The grace of God go I. We're, ju- we're, not, we're not that different. Evil runs throughout our heart as well. We're capable of heinous sin as well. If it wasn't for God's grace, thank you for your grace. May it humble us, may it empower us and strengthen us at the same time. God, I pray for our church that we would be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.